The ghoulish adventures of the Adams family took place in a fictional world with little resemblance to reality. But little do most of us know, the Adamses, as they came to be called, actually have physical connections to New York. In addition to having their debut as a single-panel cartoon in The New Yorker, the Adams family live on at 510 Sagaponic Road on Long Island the headquarters of the T. and Charles Adams Foundation. It was set up to preserve the legacy of Charles Adams, the creator of the Adams family. There are tons of stories like this connecting folklore and ghoulish tales to real places in and around New York. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Halloween is just around the corner, so to get into the spirit, we've prepared a Halloween-themed show. Later, we'll hear from the founders of a Brooklyn-based candy company on how to make candy in your very own kitchen. Even if it doesn't turn out pretty or exactly the right texture or whatever, it's still going to be delicious and someone is probably going to be happy to help you eat it. So it's really helpful to just be able to, like, you know, remember it's just candy and that making it really should be something that's that's fun to do. But first, we're joined this morning by J.W. Oker. The J stands for Jason. He's the author of a guidebook to macabre and ghastly sites in New York. It's called The New York Grimpendium. Jason, thanks for taking the time. No, I appreciate the invitation. First of all, the word Grimpendium, is that something that you coined? I did, I did. Because of the content of the book, it's kind of varied. I had to come up with some kind of way to catch it all without it you know, giving the wrong impressions. So I just threw the word grim with the word compendium. It seemed to work out so far anyway. Now, this is your second grimpendium, correct? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh-huh. You did one focusing on New England. I did. New England is where I live, so I decided to, do, to try that area first. That book covered all six states of New England, whereas this one, the New York book, obviously just covers New York. What's creepier, New York or New England? Oh, everybody has their own style of creep. You know, it's, it's you know, every everywhere from is different from Arizona to the to the coast here. Everybody has their own like style. Uh, New York is very, uh, it's, it's varied. It's hard to talk about New York as a state overall, just because how varied it is from the cities to the countries to upstate to the Great Lakes. To, you know, to they they share borders with like another country and three or four other states. So it's really hard to nail it down. But there's definitely this uh, just a sense of population that really really uh, defines how it's creepy. I think. How much ground did you cover for this book here in New York? I drove uh, all my since I'm in New England. I drove uh, for all my trips. I I covered nine thousand miles just in New England. That doesn't count like between you know New England, whatever I drove in New England to get to New York. But I covered nine thousand miles in about ten eleven months. What fascinates you so much about the macabre? It's really really hard to say. Um, I definitely have multiple answers to that question, depending on my mood, I guess. Um, sometimes it's, it's literally just the same thing as a favorite color. You know, I like green. I'm not sure why I like green or when I started liking green, but for some reason I like green. Same with the macabre. I like, you know, the aesthetic appeal of a skull, of a gravestone, things like that. But then there's also that other, when I'm in my more, I guess, serious moments, there's that, there's that sense of it's such a huge part of life that we we don't really deal with as much. So it's, it almost defined, defines us as, as people, and it, it, it's a commonality we all share. We're all going to die. We're all going to experience other people dying. And it's just this huge part of our, our lives that we just try to, that we marginalize more often than not. So there, there's a huge fascination with, with that kind of um, friction. How do you view death? I, I don't really have anything deep about death. Um, that's, that's a good question. I, I ha- honestly, I haven't asked, been asked that question. Uh, you say I, I in the book, as... though. You say in the book, though, Jason, that your favorite thing about death might be the getting buried part. <laughs> what does that mean I, exactly? 
I love, I love the, uh, I do love the rituals around death. I'm a big fan of those. Everything from, um, you know, obviously the, the funeral system we have set up and caskets, but mostly I love cemeteries. It's they're the most bizarre things in the world. Uh, cemeteries in modern culture, we're getting farther and farther away from them as we find other ways to dispose of bodies and deal with death. But cemeteries are just this. They're always these fields of just dead bodies. You know, almost like a almost like a farm. You know, instead of instead of crops in the ground, you have dead bodies, and each one sprouts a, a tombstone. So you have these these memento mori that are everywhere. They're everywhere in, in the northeast coast. You can, you know, on the way to the grocery store, you're going to pass two graveyards. So they're everywhere. They're full of dead bodies. They're full of art, funerary art, statues and sculpture. They are represent people's lives. It's just this weird spot on the uh, on the map that we have, uh, multiple spots on the map that we have. And I just find them so fascinating, knowing that I'm going to be there one day, more than likely, uh, in, a, in a grave under a rock that, you know, nobody will visit at some point. It just fascinates me. Your book tells the stories behind a number of grave sites, a few that truly captivated me, including one of a boy killed by kisses. And he's actually buried not too far from here, where we are at Fordham University in the Bronx. Yeah, that's in Woodlawn Cemetery. That's one of my favorite cemeteries in the entire state, actually. It's a great cemetery. I don't know if people visit it. I don't know how well-known it is in the Bronx, but it's, it's a fascinating cemetery. It's huge, and it's got you know lakes and, or ponds and, and paths, and you never know what's around the next bin. It's got famous burials. Herman Melville's buried there. He's uh, obviously the author of Moby Dick, uh, Duke Ellis, uh, Matt, Bat Masterson. So all these like famous things, but also these weird, weird, unique stories, like this one, the boy, the boy killed by kisses. He was a 13, 14-year-old boy who's working at an um, insurance co- company, and it was his birthday, and he, all, all the, all the you know, women in the office were kind of making fun of him and saying they're going to kiss him for his birthday, and you know, he was you know, playing coy about that. And at the end of the day, they all kind of like rushed, you know, friendly, like rushed, rushed him, and he fell, and he had like a, a blade in his shirt. for a, It was called an eraser, but it was for scraping uh, ink off of paper, and it just uh, impaled him, and he died moments later. So... This moment of frivolity and fun and interaction just turned horrible in two seconds. And so they've actually written that story on his gravestone. It's a little loaf-sized block of um, stone, and the entire story is engraved on it. They thought it was important enough to uh, tell everybody, you know, since yeah. later. New York City's home to an old graveyard, but not for people, for ships. And you write about that yes. in the book. Yes, it's uh, on the shores of uh, Staten Island. It's uh, called Arthur Kill Shipyard. It's named after, obviously, the kills, the waterway there, and also there's uh, a, the road there by the shipyard is also Arthur Kill Road. And for the past century, they've just been lug- lugging, you know, ships of various sizes, uh, not- nothing probably as big as uh, a large-sized shipping boat. So, so no cruises, but some ferries, just lugging them into the, the shallows, into the muck on the side of Staten Island, just letting them decay there. They're, um, it's actually part of a marine salvage yard, officially, but there's a public access through a nearby graveyard, <laughs> a human graveyard, I should say, where you just walk through it into this marshy area, and you can see, like, some of the ships. There's probably about a 60 to 100 ships just sitting there rusting and molding and sinking. And it's just a, another thing where it, it's technically ugly. I mean, it's, it's, it's decay. At the same time, it's, there's a beauty to it, and it's fascinating. And, you know, you can sit there for hours and just look at it. What criteria did you use for including sites in this book? Two criteria. Well, I'll say three criteria. Uh, one criteria is there had to be death-related in some way. And I, I use that term death-related really widely. It could be anything from tragedy, actual, you know, tragedy that's you talk about in whispers and you don't you know, don't make too much fun of to all the way to lighthearted whether it's a, a dark carnival ride or you know a monster statue in the middle of a town so a, a broad breadth of what's what's death related and that could be cultural it could be a piece of art it could be an oddity of nature it could be anything like that so a broad definition of death related 
Uh, second, there had to be a physical thing attached to it, uh, whether that's an artifact or a building or a site, something you could go and actually take a picture of. So that was my second criteria. So it couldn't just be, to give you an opposite example, it couldn't just be a random bit of folklore that people people talk about that, that just kind of wafts around town, has been around forever. Couldn't be um, you know any kind of vague story or anything like something so historical that nothing survives from it. It had to have some kind of physical site, whether somebody memorialized it, whether it itself got served. So that was the second criteria. And the third, quite simply, is I had to visit it firsthand. So because the book is both a guidebook for everybody else and a travelogue of my own experiences, I had to visit these things firsthand to experience them and you know talk about them and give my opinion and experiences there. Okay, that all being said, Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford is in the <laughs> chapter titled Legends and Personalities of the Macabre. And my first thought was, Joan Crawford, really? Why right, is she in no, this book? A, that's a completely valid question. You should definitely call me out on that. Uh, she's in this book. I definitely, again, stretched a little bit to, to include some things I just wanted to write about. But Joan Crawford, toward the end of her career, started doing horror movies. Um, she started doing with Betty Davis. You know, they did... Uh, um, whatever happened to the baby Jane? She did a uh, Trog, which is this cr- weird British movie that they find a a caveman in a in a ca- uh, a living relic, a caveman in a cave, and he they, he's like he wears this old beat up suit that was used in uh, two thousand one Monkey, uh, one of the two thousand one Monkeys. He, he wears that suit, and it's just this weird, low budget, bizarre little horror movie. So she she did some horror, but the, oh, the second reason I put her in there is because I did the same thing to Betty Davis in the New England Compendium because Betty Davis was born in uh, Massachusetts. So I put her in there because she did the same thing. Toward the end of her career, she started doing like creepy old woman roles, I guess. You could, you could say, that, say flippantly, I guess. So she did like a series of those that are really strong movies, great movies. And I, so because of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford's rivalry and because they were both together and whatever happened to Baby Jane, I decided to put her in this book as well. Okay, fair enough. I thought you were going to say because the story of Mommy Dearest is pretty frightening. That's valid as well, I think. Definitely frightening. <laughs> Definitely seen uh, much more tamer horror movies than that one. Edgar Allan Poe is also in this chapter, Legends and Personalities of the Macabre. And in fact, the Poe Cottage isn't far from where we're located here at Fordham University in the Bronx. Yeah, yeah. One of my, uh, one of my sub-hobbies, I guess, in all this is visiting sites connected to Edgar Allan Poe all up and down the East Coast, from Boston all the way down to South Carolina. Because um, every, everywhere Poe was, he has been memorialized somehow because he was, he was constantly walking, you know, traveling the country looking for work and also respect for his work. So he, he was pretty much everywhere on the East Coast. And everybody's memorialized it. And one of the better ones I found is, you know, Edgar Allan Poe Park in the Bronx. Because obviously they've preserved his cottage, the actual cottage he lived in and where his wife, Virginia Klim, died. She actually died in that cottage. And they preserved it by moving it into a park. So they actually, you know, took expense and effort and, 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 the, and the time to move this to a park, themed a park around it. And then just earlier this year, they actually built a museum in the park as well. It's a small museum. It's uh, shaped to remind people of the raven. So it has these dark um, shingles on the side, dark gray shingles, and the roof is angled like a wing. And you go in there, and it has some stuff about Poe. And at the end of it, it's like a oblong building. At the very end is a giant picture window that's that's framed directly on the Poe cottage. So a really great great uh, effort on the on on the people of the Bronx to preserve this this literary site and also how they preserved it. Also in this chapter is Rod Serling, the creator of the Twilight Zone. Do 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 do. He has an upstate New York connection, which I did not know about. Yes, he was uh, born in Binghamton. Also died in uh, died nearby, so he was buried in New York as well in the Finger Lakes region in Interlochen. But uh, he was born in Binghamton. Uh, spent uh, not most of his life there. He, obviously, he went to he went to uh, the city and uh, L.A. to to do the the showbiz career. But he kept coming back to Binghamton throughout his life, and they've really done a great job of honoring him. There's a you know star 
on their walk of fame with his name. His, his house is still there. They have a sign that's dedicated to him in front of the high school. They've, they've named some of their programs after him. But most most interestingly, their park near, near his house was actually the inspiration for one of his in the first season Twilight Zone episodes, um, Walking Distance. He based it on a park that had a carousel and a bandstand uh, near his house. And the bandstand today, they actually have a plaque in the middle of it saying this was you know, the inspiration for Walking Distance. Hmm. And then the carousel, just earlier, either late last year or early this year, they've actually painted the um, carousel with uh, scenes from the Twilight Zone. So on the crown of the carousel as it goes around, there's these long scenes, all the, all the famous ones you know, you know, William Shatner singing the thing on the plane and the guy breaking his glasses after the end of the end of the world. So all those famous scenes are like painted uh, on the side of this carousel. Neat. That's worth the drive from New York City oh, to check out. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I have to say I'm fascinated by the story of the Fox sisters. Their story starts in western New York, but it ends in Brooklyn. Who were the Fox sisters? So the Fox sisters, in a phrase, were the mothers of spiritualism. So these are the guys, or the girls, I should say, that really got New York, especially, but uh, all over the United States, uh, into this spiritualism, into this idea that we could communicate with people that have passed on. So it started in this cottage out in Hydesville, out in western New York. And uh, they were just, they were kids, two of them, 15, they were like 12 and 15. So they were teenagers. And somehow they were, they were playing a, uh, well, there's two ways to tell a story, I guess. You could tell a story as a believer since spiritualism is still around today. Or you could tell a story as a skeptic. But apparently they told their parents they were talking to a dead person. And somehow this steamrolled into a huge career. They moved to Rochester. Uh, they moved where they started getting bigger and bigger. They were on stages. They were in Europe. Uh, their third sister, who was in her 30s, actually, she was, she was a bit older. She joined them, so it ended up being like a trinity of sisters. And they just got this huge, huge following that, uh, that snowballed to this to this day. Um, toward the end of their lives, they, they recanted and then recanted back again. And it's it just a, just a weird, really weird story. But there's memorials to them all over, um, like you said, between Western New York and, um, and uh, Brooklyn. They're so, buried in Brooklyn, right? Yes, they are. All, all three of them. One of them, the, the, the older woman, um, the, 30, the, the, the older sister, she is buried with her family. She was married, you know, had, had kids. The other two who were more, more into the spiritualism, they actually were buried in pauper's graves. And only in the past you know, few decades, somebody put a stone up there. And now they're labeled. The cemetery has labeled them as a, you know, a notable grave to go see. But everything from the, the foundations of their original ha- cabin to mementos from the cabin there's a, are preserved. And you can go see them. There's a monument in Rochester, like a, an obelisk that just, uh, that's dedicated to them. So... You know, more, more monuments than, you know, probably half the presidents of the United States have, these Fox sisters do. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. As Halloween creeps closer, this morning we're exploring macabre sites in New York with J.W. Oker. He penned a book of scary stories into their physical connections to New York called the New York Grimpendium. The main branch of the New York Public Library is fascinating for a number of reasons, including its architecture. But who knew that it's home to a lock of hair that belonged to Mary Shelley, who penned Frankenstein? No, this absolutely blew me away. When I started the book, I knew nothing about this. And it wasn't only until shortly before my first trip to, into Manhattan that I found out about this, and it just floored me. So most, most people, you think of a library, even, even something as august as the, New, as the main branch of the New York Public Library, it's mostly books, right? That's what they do. They do books. But the New York Public Library is just a vortex of just literary history. So they have an entire collection of artifacts from authors. And they were doing it. It's over now, but they were doing that the whole year. I was writing the book, actually, all last year. They were doing a, a big show based on the artifacts. So they had like a letter opener from Charles Dickens. They had the original Winnie the Pooh that uh, that the stories were based on. They had you know just original original letters from authors. They had artifacts, canes. They had, they had everything. It was a pretty amazing exhibit. 
And it all came from their own archives. And one of those archives was, one of the, in those archives is the lock of hair from Mary Shelley. And the way they got it, the, the reason why it's around, I should say, is she, she was obviously the, uh, the wife of Percy Shelley. And Percy Shelley kind of had this philosophy around free love where he thought that you know, marriage and it was, was kind of artificial and people should be a lot more freer with who they uh, interact intimately with. And at one point, he actually he tried to um, have Mary Shelley be intimate with one of his friends just, you know, just because he wanted, he wanted this big you know, just group of friends that were all on these intimate terms. And uh, she, <laughs> she, sent, she sent the guy a letter saying, you know, you know hey – you know, I'm I'm uh, Percy's wife, and he, he he thinks we should get to know each other. So just as a token of my husband's respect for you, I have enclosed closed a lock of my hair. As far as we know, nothing came of that, but the lock of the lock of hair is preserved, and to this day is right now in New York. So that's pretty amazing. This horror this horror author from you know the 1800s over in Europe, a uh, piece of her body, literally a piece of her body, is now in our in our archives in New York. How yes. very very unusual. <laughs> yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> you, your book also includes a chapter titled Infamous Crimes, Killers, and Tragedies and includes a section about the grave of a Jack the Ripper suspect. How did yes. you stumble on that in New York? Well, that I visited actually before I even started the book just because it's such a fascinating thing. Um, obviously, Jack the Ripper has his, his own like place and he's, he's beyond a villain now. He's now a character. I guess we, we use him as an as a archetype, as a metaphor. He's, he's a thousand things beyond a killer now somehow. But he's still a fascinating story. But he's a, he's a London story. Uh, i actually been to London. I've taken the, uh, the Jack the Ripper tour where they take you to all the sites connected to Jack the Ripper. And they're mostly mundane these days. They're like corners of the streets, piece of sidewalk, an office building. So, so nothing that interesting. But then I found out that one of the actual um, suspects, an actual suspect, not just somebody that an author said, you know, 200 years later an author says he thinks it's, it's this guy, but somebody that's actually questioned by Scotland Yard. He was, a, was, in a, was an American and actually is buried in New York. His name was um, Francis Tumblety. And uh, he, a, w- a weird guy. I, I can see why you'd accuse him of anything, honestly. He ran around in fake military uniforms and a giant ferret-sized mustache and greyhounds on leashes. And he collected human uteruses and sold snake oil and just this crazy, crazy, crazy character. And um, for some reason, they thought he might have a connection to Jack the Ripper. So they questioned him for it. Uh, they let him go or, you know, so nothing came of it. But the, the other weird thing, he was also questioned for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So he was just one of these guys that was had either weird friends huh. or was in the wrong places at the wrong time. Also, quickly clear to that as well. Where is that gravesite? Uh, that's in Rochester, so up in western New York. I'm very familiar with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire and, in fact, have done programs on it in the past, but I never heard about the Brooklyn Theater fire you recount in your book. Yeah, there was a, there was a period of time when theater fires were some of the worst fires in the country. They were just not designed uh, with... with you know, evacuation in mind. There was always tiered seats for you know different different pay levels. There was uh, you know bad badly designed exits. No, nothing nothing um, really uh, directing you to exits. Obviously, no electric lights back then. Um, and it was just one of those one of those things. They were they were they're in the middle of a play, and a piece of canvas from the stage kind of got caught in one of the the stage lights, which was, which was an actual flame in a metal basket. Basically, the canvas slipped between the bars, caught a light. It was a small uh, fire. In fact, the actor saw it, didn't pay any attention to it. But as, as the backstage crew tried to put it out, it just conflagrated. It was, it was just one of those things where it just everything on the theater stage was flammable. It was all painted. It was all, you know, temporary materials. It was all meant to just give a facade of a background and nothing more. Just caught a light. Um, most of the people in the good seats, like the expensive seats, got out. But the people up in the balcony um, that had to come down like a twisting um, thing of stairs to get out, 
they all basically got burned, uh, burned alive or smoke uh, asphyxiation or trampled. So all the, ways, all the horrible ways you can die in a fire, obviously they died. And that night, it was just, uh, just a, a tragedy of them pulling bodies out, trying to figure out who they are. The hospitals were full. They had volunteers in, involved. So a huge, huge tragedy. Um, of course, as a result of that, they changed the laws concerning you know, people inside of a building. And there were, there were some good that came out of it, but obviously at a huge cost. And today, a lot of the unidentified remains are buried in uh, Greenwood Cemetery. Underneath a large obelisk tells the story of it and uh, just above a giant you know, mass grave of the unidentified victims. What's the macabre connection to Central Park's Belvedere Castle? Okay. <laughs> no, that's a good example of the variety. I'm glad you brought that up. So Belvedere, Belvedere Castle, um, obviously these days it's a nature museum. It's, just a, it's, a, it's a site just to see while you're in, in uh, Central Park. But it was actually used for the first castle for, for Count Von Count from Sesame Street. The song of the Count. They would use it as the cutscene. So when Count was in his castle and they wanted to establish that, sh- that scene, they would show a shot of Belvedere Castle. This was only the, the first couple of seasons, but um, originally the Count was a much scarier Count, a uh, lot more evil-looking and and a uh, lot, lot more uh, dark in what he did. But uh, Belvedere Castle was Count von Count's castle. Slowly getting faster. Once I start in counting, it's very hard to stop. Is Halloween your favorite holiday? Is that oh, Christmas definitely. for you? Yeah. <laughs> it really is. I actually celebrate it like a month and a half. So I start, we decorate like around first cool day of, the, of September. We decorate and I, I you know, write, I write every day on my website about it. It's a massive celebration. Well, Jason, happy Halloween. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. The book is The New York Rimpendium, A Guide to Macabre and Ghastly Sites. Jason, thanks again. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. J.W. Oker is the author of The New York Grimpendium. Find out more by visiting our website at wfuv.org slash cityscape. Forget trick-or-treating. You can make candy in your own kitchen. Liz Gutman and Jen King, candy connoisseurs of sorts, founded Little Bit Sweets, a Brooklyn-based candy company. They've compiled many candy recipes from white chocolate truffles to PB&J cups into a book. It's called The Little Bit Sweets Candy Cookbook. Liz and Jen join us on the phone this morning. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. And Jen, good morning to you. Good morning. You are both classically trained pastry chefs, so why the switch to the candy-making business? Liz, let's start with you. You know, it's funny. We, we know each other from uh, being pastry school together um, a few years ago, and uh, starting a business was never something we really planned for. Candy was just something we kind of started doing um, to, you know, flex our creative muscles a little bit, come up with our own recipes. We were both working in food at the time, but, um, you know, we're interested in working on our own stuff. So it was kind of a a weekend project that, you know, snowballed and turned into a full-time gig. Jen, what do you like most about working with candy? What I like most about it is playing around with the perception of candy and playing around with memories, I think. You know, a lot's been done with chocolate, like as far as bonbons and, you know, chocolate single origins and different types of chocolate. But not a lot is being played with, I think, you know, the candy bar or old-fashioned candy. So to bring that back and to sort of use a lot of our training to sort of, you know, play around with the idea of candy, but maybe with a more sophisticated palette. 
is what's the most exciting. So you have this candy business in Brooklyn called Little Bit Sweets, but why then share these recipes with others? Why put together a cookbook? You know, um, there were a lot of people who, who asked us about that, and there are some recipes in there that, um, you know, are signature recipes that we developed. Um, I mean, the thing is, like, we're not... I'd like take the beer and pretzel caramel. That's that's one of our most well known um, candies. So there was some debate as to you know are you going to include this in the book? Do you you know be giving away your secrets and stuff? I mean the thing is, you know it's just a recipe and it's labor intensive and you know it's definitely a project. But as long as people are willing to you know if someone wants to put in the time to make that at home, more power to them. We're really just about kind of spreading happiness and love anyway so as much as we can share you know it's something that that we wanted to be able to do for our our customers and our fans is it hard to make candy at home i don't think i mean it's not hard i think what it is is people are very afraid of it it's something that you know i think if you've never done it before it's very intimidating especially to i think home cook especially because when you you read up on chocolate and tempering and a lot of you know cookbooks that we had looked at they're either very, very advanced for, like, those who had gone to school for it or they're very, very basic and not a lot of information is, is given about it. So when we wrote the cookbook, it was to try to break down those or demystify some of it, you know, the fear that you might have as a home cook baking candy. I, I think once you become comfortable with it, once you know what to look for, it is, it's a lot of fun. People, I think, are shocked at how easy it can be. And again, once you know the basic um, principles of it, you can really start to become your own Willy Wonka. You can start experimenting, and you can start, you know, making candy the way that you like it. And you can do it without the Oompa Loompas? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Unless you want to dress up your kid (laughs) as an Oompa Loompa. You say it's helpful to have a sense of humor when making homemade candy. Why is that? Oh, man. Um, you know, candy is not a science, but it does take some getting used to and just, you know, getting comfortable with the techniques and, and all that stuff. And, you know, say you prepped everything and followed the recipe exactly, and for whatever reason, it still doesn't turn out. I mean, the upshot is, even if it doesn't turn out pretty or exactly the right texture or whatever, it's still going to be delicious and someone is probably going to be happy to help you eat it. So it's really helpful to just be able to, like, take a deep breath, keep it in perspective, you know, remember it's just candy, and that making it really should be something that's that's fun to do. What kind of equipment do you need in your kitchen to make candy? The most uh, important thing is the candy thermometer, uh, especially when you're working with sugar. It's, it's really important to have that because in candy, one of the most difficult aspects is a couple degrees can really change the complete texture of candy. If it be fudge or maple sugar candy, you really have to be able to have a pretty accurate reading. So we put in the book, you know, that you want your analog candy thermometer, which is the metal one that you're used to seeing, but then also having a digital thermometer as well to get a really accurate reading of um, where the sugar's at is important. Uh, other than that, uh, we put in the book what what we really what you really need to have and what's recommended. You don't need to have like a stand mixer, but you know when you're you're making some candy like the nougat, it's a little bit easier on your arm if you have one. 
I have to say, you had me at fig and regatta caramels. What are among your favorite recipes? I, I, I really love the popcorn in there, and I love the Dory candy bar, I think, if you're looking to spend time, or uh, the Malamars. I think we get a lot of, a lot of happy people when they make the Malamars. Um, I think my favorite to make uh, is the honeycomb candy, just because it's very dramatic and, and unusual. And as far as eating, I mean, I don't know. I might have to second the the, the chocomallow cookie recipe. It's like a it's like a homemade malamar, but also the sea salt caramel is kind of the one that I always go back to, just because it's so simple and so dare I say perfect. <laughs> well, you have to love a book with chapters titled "Gummy and Gooey and Chewy Oh My" and "Candy Walks into a Bar." Seems like you guys had a lot of fun putting this book together. Yeah, absolutely. And and we also got really, really lucky with um, the team at Workman, our publisher. We, you know, we got matched with an editor who just really got our sense of humor um, and let us, you know, let us have fun with it. It was really important to us to impart as much information as possible in a really unintimidating way, but also keep the voice fun and light and, and like you're having a conversation with us in your kitchen, you know? Liz Gottman, thanks so much. Of course, my pleasure. And Jen King, thank you. Thank you. Liz Gutman and Jen King are the authors of the Little Bit Sweets Candy Cookbook. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget you can visit WFUV.org slash Cityscape to get past editions of the show. Become a fan on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer, Morlene Chin, and producer, Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.